0: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Melody Valdini, the author of The Inclusion Calculation, Why Men Appropriate Women's Representation. This book was published in 2019 by Oxford University Press and explores an, a, a rather unexplored area of what we consider to be sort of a topic within gender politics, which is essentially the calculation that male politicians are making with regard to including or not including women in um, elected office. But I'm going to let Melody talk to us about that and how she came to this really fascinating project. Hi, Melody. Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project.
1: Hi. Uh, Well, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really, I'm honored to have the opportunity to talk about this book. Um, This project really means the world to me. This is, uh, in my mind, the most important thing I've ever written. It feels the most authentic and the most true. Um, And my process for developing this book took Years, uh, in part because I had some babies, so they, you know, are a little distracting. Um, But I found, even as a young scholar, that I just was having, I was hesitant to fully embrace the wing of the literature that was talking about how women need more ambition. Because uh, I've always been a very ambitious woman. And I've hit a lot roadblocks in my life, and I've hit a lot of places where uh you know the the power structure, the hierarchy that I was involved in basically said, "You know, we don't really care how ambitious you are, we don't care how much you're leaning in. you're just not what we want right now and so I would always think about that when I would hear it at various conferences or read articles about this advice to you know ladies just just try harder and then you will be represented, you'll get the raises, you'll be in political office. And um so my resistance to those ideas got me thinking, like, okay, well if it's not that, then what is what's going on here? Why why am I feeling like uh I I work incredibly hard and people tell me everything is equal now, you know, we reached so much equality and yet sometimes it feels like I just cannot break through Um, You know, far from the glass ceiling, like even like the glass, just like one foot above me. And um, slowly but surely, I I just thought, okay, well, it's it's a patriarchy, yeah, sure, but why 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 would these? This sounds silly to put it like this, but I was like, why would these men be so mean to us? Like, why wouldn't they want us to have this equality? And over time, it occurred to me, no, they're not being mean to us. This is. The system that they're operating in, this is the rational action is for them to maintain the system in which they have privilege and power. Most of them aren't even conscious of it. And so it's not about men being, as I say in the book, it's not about men being devils and, you know, delighting in torturing women. And of course I have a loophole that says, Okay, yes, there are a few men that are devils, and there are a few men that are angels that purely are willing to give up their own power for women's success but instead the vast majority of men and women are just rational opportunists right they're just looking to advance their own power and their own careers and so when they are when those people are considering women increasing women in power they're going to be thinking about okay well how will her presence help me so it's much less about what that woman is doing and much more about acknowledging the patriarchy and acknowledging the fact that most people in power, their number one goal is to just keep that power. And so they're willing to um, embrace having more women in power if that's that will help them. And they're also willing to close the door if it will not help them. And so that it, it made it much less personal and honestly helped me withstand um, setbacks in my own life by thinking about it as this rational, rational opportunist scenario rather than the devils. Uh, you know, some people say well, the men don't
0: want us here, but again, I,
1: I really don't think that's it. I think it is instead this rational actor.
0: And, and the rational actor model, which I, I agree with you, seems to makes a lot of sense as you sort of unfold it throughout the book um, and, and certainly in context of thinking about, you know, what is the motivation for bringing women into positions of power or bringing other people who have not been in those positions before into power. It's certainly, you know, again, it, it makes a lot of sense, but as you note, this is something that hasn't really been studied. And you sort of found this as a gap in sort of the political science literature, the the literature on gender and politics, and questions of representation. Can you talk a little bit about um, the gap in the literature because of where all of the emphasis has been? Sure, yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, all of the emphasis in the literature has been on women and on, um, and also on the institutions and structures and culture, but it all comes back to, well, what are the women doing? You know, are, Does this electoral system uh, facilitate women winning? Does this level of uh, rate of literacy in society facilitate women's ascension to higher education and then being well-qualified for leadership? Does this belief about uh, women's role in the family versus the public sphere does that? How does that impact women's decisions to run for office? So, so much of the literature I was I've, I've grown up as a scholar reading, and which is outstanding, uh, but it it just it left out men, and I and I understand completely the the reasons why, um, but on the other hand, I think that it also it it leaves out an important piece of the picture that where, you know, we basically have created this blind spot in the literature. And I'm, I'm saying, no, we have to look over here too. Um, even though honestly, you know, as a, as a feminist and someone who really likes love writing about women in politics, it was a disconcerting moment for me when I realized like, oh my goodness, my book is going to be about men. Like, <laughs> like, oh, what have I done? <laughs> but um, <laughs> <laughs> <I'm a traitor. laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it just it was so important in the literature, and honestly, um, my own graduate training at I went to UC San Diego, and it was a very um, uh, a department that very much focused on uh, rational actor sorts of literature, and did not have a a gender program to speak of. I, I was really self taught in terms of gender there, and but in a way that ended up being a benefit because I was able to see. How these two literatures were not talking to one another. That we had this huge rational actor assumption and wings of political science were so dedicated to understanding the rational actor. But then over in the gender section of the literature, it really wasn't being engaged that much. And so I think that helped me marry the two as well.
0: And and that's what I found to be super interesting in terms of your exploration of this question, because you also make a distinction early in the book and setting up the, the direction and the thrust of the, of the, um, research. And in the title of your book, it's talking about women's representation, but you, you note that it's about, you know, there's a distinction between women's descriptive representation in terms of their presence in politics, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have power and you make this distinction with regard to their sort of position with regard to proximate, proximate to power and actually having power. And I, th- I found that to be a, a really important sort of parsing. Um, and, and I think it also gets to some of the discussion that you have throughout the book with regard to what is it that men actually want with regard to women in office.
1: Right, right, absolutely. Uh, I think, um, and I'm really glad you noticed that about the, you know, how women can appear to be very close to power, but we should not assume that they actually have the power uh, and that we have to, to be very mindful of that. And that part of the theory really reflects findings in the substantive representation. Literature, you know, that's looking at okay, women are in the legislature, what are they doing, what are they getting done? And so much of so many of their findings, not all, but many of them are finding that, you know, women are there, but they're getting blocked on creating legislation for even some basic rights for women and women's equality. And so their findings really echo and inspired that. That line of the theory in the book, and also my own personal experiences. You um, know, mm-hmm. I felt very lucky to have a job, and very lucky to, to have achieved what I've gotten in my career. But I think it's also important to note that there were times when I felt that I was being given a particular role because it would it would send a good signal that I was there um, in my in my own experience in academia, and that that also informed that element of the theory my own experiences of of having a certain role or having a certain level of power but um feeling like okay i don't have access to real true power and i can see how the people who are in power above me are benefiting from me having this position in, from the signal that I'm sending to others from being in this position. And that that really stuck with me as I wrote this.
0: And and so in terms of the the structure of your argument and the thrust of your research, besides the sort of like signaling versus actual power, the the presentation or the representation as opposed to actually holding power. You you talk about this inclusion calculation, a term that you introduce and is really the the kind of idea um, behind the research. And you talk about how do men benefit from including women? Can you talk about how you sort of came up with this particular framework and what it is that you sort of used in terms of thinking about that beyond sort of the question of of rational actors.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the inclusion calculation um, is basically my way of saying um, that women's presence in certain uh, roles in the government or in society can be beneficial to the institution, to those in power around them because of the signals that they send. But the calculation emphasizes that that benefit of the signal that women's presence sends sometimes is not enough to um, make it worth it, basically, to those in power. So that's why I say. Um, so what I do is I come up with a. I came up with a list of essentially costs and benefits uh, in the mind of selectors, and in and in, in much of the book I'm talking about party elites as uh, the people that I'm analyzing. And so in the minds of party elites constructing their candidate lists when they're thinking about, okay, who are we going to run props here? I argue that they're thinking about these five costs and benefits. And um, I'm happy to talk through each one of them, uh, but I can give just a sure. little bit. Okay, great. A little bit briefly on each one. The first is the displacement cost, which gets at, and a lot of these, I want to emphasize, a lot of these reflect what we already know in the literature. I'm just gathering them up and saying, okay, here's why they work in a bigger picture kind of way. Um, So that first displacement cost is the potential negative impact of replacing incumbents with women candidates. Uh, And I note there are a lot of complications to this. It depends on, um, for example, the electoral system. It depends on has there been some recent event that has made men in the system want to want to flee from this particular position of power, such that you know uh, it, it, what's the glass? Forget um, not the glass ceiling, glass cliff. That's it. Is it a glass cliff situation? Um, the second factor that i say is in the inclusion calculation is the threat cost and that's more personal to the particular elite that's considering including women and i argue here that this is the personal fear that the newly included women will somehow or someday undermine the power and resources of the current male elite and i want to be very clear here I'm not arguing that this is, you know, that there's a, a dark room where there are a bunch of guys who are like, you know what, if we let those ladies in, they're going to take our power. But um, I use a lot of the political psychology literature to support the idea that there is this undercurrent of fear. And that, you know, um, and in my own experience too, I've, I've noticed this as well. It, the closer one is to power, the actual real power the more uncomfortable the actual power holders will be with your presence right if you're far away from it if you're not really a threat to them then sure yeah let's let's put a woman on a ticket no problem but if you are in a position where your presence there could somehow someday take over from them then your presence is is much less likely to be supported uh, and again I, I, that really echoed some personal experiences in in academia where I found that you know very high-level administrators were being very supportive of, of increasing the presence of, of women and um, of diversity in general, but it was the mid-level people that were like, hang on a minute, we're not, we're not quite sure we're comfortable with this. Uh, the third factor in the inclusion calculation is the incongruity cost, and this gets at the potential negative electoral impact of having women on the party list's or in the political scene, or in the institution, that have stereotypically feminine traits. Because as we know from so much existing literature, um, people assume that women are communal, um, and they assume that men are better equipped for leadership. So I wanted to make sure that my theory was acknowledging that reality, that, you know, party elites, even if they were for, had calculated it would be great to have women on the list they're going to be thinking okay how are the voters going to interpret women's presence here though are they going to start thinking that the party is less aggressive less um, certain towards reaching our fighting for our goals and using all that gendered masculine language um, so I wanted to include that as well and that of course comes from the role in community literature which is uh, outstanding work um, the fourth factor in the, inclusion, in the inclusion calculation is the domestic responsiveness, cost or benefit, and this refers to the potential reward or punishment for essentially listening to social movements or listening to social pressure that's demanding more of women's presence in office. Again, I want to emphasize that can be a reward or a punishment, and, and I think that's very important to note that, again, uh, sometimes listening to certain societal groups. For one party, it would be very beneficial. For another party, it would be uh, terrible. It would be a very, very uh, serious error for them. And the fifth factor is the international responsiveness cost or benefit, which is um, both tangible benefits, so uh, foreign aid, um, benefits offered by international organizations that respond to the increased presence of women in politics or women in power as well as the potential societal backlash to responding to international pressure. So I was thinking a lot about the EU when I was writing about that and thinking about how countries that are members of the EU um, face this pressure of, yes, uh, some of them want to play along for various financial reasons, but then uh, especially these days, you know, many, many citizens in these countries are not that excited about the EU and actually will backlash a little bit if they feel that their country is following an international rule rather than their own domestic preferences and norms. So um, those are the five, basically the five things that I said would be impacting how the strategy of elites and the strategy of men in power as to whether or not they would introduce more women into the system. And then I have a, a, a little bit more... On that I don't include it in the inclusion calculation itself, but I also consider the effect of women in proximity. And I didn't include it in, cal- in the calculation because we really don't have enough research as a field on how it works. So in other words, we really can't predict with any uh, systematic nature results that how the presence of women in power will impact the, include, the inclusion of more women in power. Um, there's a common misconception that uh, women in power will we always welcome women in power, but we, well, there's significant literature that says no, that's not actually what happens. And in fact, what happens is those women in power are reinforcing the patriarchal norms that they had to accept in order to get them there. So, because I couldn't get a clear picture of what women in power, their impact, what their impact would be in the inclusion calculation. I, I wanted to acknowledge them with my women in proximity variable, but I didn't uh, build them into the main theory. And I'm really hoping that uh, more research is done so that we can better understand the impact of, of women in power on women's inclusion. Because I think there's a lot there that we don't know. But um, but yeah, that's about it for the for the calculation.
0: And, and you use this calculation then to, to do a number of different Sort of methodological um, investigations to try to figure out, um, as you know, what the calculus is and how it works. And you found some really interesting conclusions from the data. Um, one of the ones that I found most fascinating um, is is the sort of understanding of what happens when there's a big scandal. Or corruption, um, and what happens in terms of that? The calculus at that point, as you pointed out, in some countries goes in the direction of more women, <laughs> and in some countries goes in the direction of not so much. Um, but I, I would love to hear what you thought when you found that um, in the in the data and, and what you made of it.
1: Yeah, that was, um, that was, that was really cool. I wish I could remember the moment that that occurred to me. Um, it was, it was many years ago. I I almost want to say it was when I was writing my dissertation because that's when I, I did some of the initial interviews, um, in Italy. And I remember talking to some of the Italian legislators and talking about the, the big corruption scandals that had happened uh, a decade before, and and it really really jumped out at me how they were like, yeah, you know, for that year after the scandal, it we were you know the hottest ticket, right? Everybody wanted ladies on their on on their representing their political party because we were thought of as a completely clean fresh start. And, and she, I remember one particular interview where the, the legislator said, you know, usually they think of us as naive, as kind of um, inexperienced in a negative way, but all of a sudden in this scenario, you know, we were thought of as, as perfect for the job, not, and she really emphasized, not because they sincerely thought that these women were going to come in and clean up the government, like these, these women legislators didn't get this impression at all from the elites, but rather that just their presence there would make people think that everything was going to get better. Um, and that really stuck with me. And even though I wrote my dissertation about, about something else, I, I think that really kept growing in my mind. And I did some preliminary research on it and, you know, presented at various conferences and got excellent feedback. And um, honestly, you know, I, I had sort of been debating whether or not to run with it, because it's really, really hard to measure corruption, yes. and um, yeah, and so sometimes I was like, oh, you know, it's, it, it's it's such a stretch; it feels nerve wracking. I don't know if I want to do this. So I created my own measure, and at times I really felt like, oh, I'm going to walk away from it. But it was just such a cool idea. And then um, a few years ago, I won the Carrie Chapman Cat Prize, and that was such a pivotal moment. In my career and in the form in the formation of this book, even though this was several years ago, because they said that was it was that idea it was the was the response to scandal idea that I had submitted to them, and just them saying, "Hey, that's a cool idea I was like okay I, I'm gonna do this I'm gonna run with this and um so yeah i i I know that sometimes uh you know we're also uh We're so busy that, you know, sometimes the prizes, you know, we don't, we don't apply for them or we don't try for them. And I remember trying for this one and really thinking, okay, if this goes well, then this is my sign to go ahead with it. And um, so, yeah, it was really, really meaningful and, you know, such an amazing organization to support uh, people who are doing research on women in politics. Um, So, yeah, I just, I can't thank them enough for that, that vote of confidence about that particular idea.
0: And that provides a lot of, well, not a lot, but a, a significant part of the sort of measuring of, you know, what what is the role of women from the perspective of men in politics, and and one of them, as you as you note, is the signaling with regard to women are presented in this context as clean, clean and honest. um, and so they, they are often turned to as, as politicians in the wake of a scandal. Um, but another component to your conclusions that I also found really fascinating, because this, this also is something that I was wondering about as you were writing about it with regard to um, gender quotas and, and how they possibly present a kind of cover um, for sort of less democracy, um, and, and more undemocratic acting by the people in power. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research that you found around gender quotas, um, in politics and the how it works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was, you know, honestly, this when I really got into thinking about gender quotas, um, with, with this theory, it really started to creep me out because, um, you know, it became clear right away that this very good idea, this very good intention could so easily be used in a way that didn't help women at all. And in fact, propped up the existing power structure even more. And that doesn't mean that it's always used that way. There are some cases where it's used very effectively, and that's great, but just um, the fact that an institution that on its face is was so could be so beautiful and instead was being used in such a um, such a way that was completely against the intention of the institution. Uh, so uh, you know that. My ideas about gender quotas: a lot of it came from the work of uh, Rainbow Murray, a lot of it also came from the work of um, Lisa Valdez, Mona Lena Crook, all these amazing scholars who have been noting over the years, uh, you know, okay, here's case after case of people not following quotas. They're, they're instituting them, they're, in the case of France, they're making them as a constitutional amendment, they're making a big deal about it and yet they're not following the quotas. And so one could dismiss that and say, well, you know, that's because they're devils, they're evil, they don't want women in politics. But again, that that just didn't sit well with me from a scientific perspective. And so I I started thinking through, okay, well, how how would men in power benefit from adopting a quota and um, having this very public essentially, announcement that they are going to be increasing the percentage of women in the legislature, knowing that citizens will see women, they will stereotype women as being more democratic, more willing to um, cooperate, more willing to stick to the norms of the system, and um, just this, this constant assumption that women are somehow inherently more democratic than men. So then it it occurred to me that gender quotas could be used as the ultimate um, best case scenario for the rational opportunist because you get all the benefit of the signal saying, okay, we are, yes, lots of ladies, so many ladies here. We're going to be, everything's going to be so democratic and so honest and all the great things. But then you can also design the quota so that it's completely ineffective or as uh, so much research has pointed out, you can design a quota so that women are marginalized to the point of um you know they're just they're just made fun of for being um, you know, quota women as it's called right so i think i want to you know, Francesca and piscopo i think um, if i'm remembering correctly there there are some of the scholars that have that they were they were looking at their um, analysis of argentina and they found that you know, women elected via the quota were, were marginalized and several other scholars have looked at this too. So then, then I thought, okay, so this, this institution, which could be so great is actually being used in this very contrary way for, for what it's intended to do.
0: And then you end up again with, you know, sort of what is the rational discussion or rational intentions that are being used to sort of include women at least representationally or in a descriptive way, but not actually have them have power. I mean, I saw that sort of trope coming through a lot of the discussion. As you say, it's in in many cases, it's not necessarily because they're devils. It's just because, you know, the structure and the desire for you know, to continue in power makes you make decisions on that basis.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a fundamental rule of political science, right? That those in power want to keep their power. So it seems to apply here as well.
0: And so how does, how does the, the sort of um, inclusion calculation and the sort of exploration of the men in relation to women, as opposed to the women in relation to the structures, um, which is often what a lot of the gender political science literature is looking at, um, what does that give us in terms of a picture of the whole?
1: Yeah, I think that it, in terms of our our greater understanding of what's going on here, um, I think it, it leaves us with some... I don't want to say troubling <laughs> uh, results or implications, but it's, uh, you know, when I really started to figure out, okay, well, what, what does this all mean for our understanding of, of women's representation and women in politics? Um, it, it, it's, it's much beyond, I think, our understanding of when women are elected, when women are selected to run for office, it, ha- it must grow to include the calculations of those who are already in power. And when we do that, we take the pressure off of women alone, right? We say, okay, it turns out it's not just you not trying hard enough and, you know, not finding the perfect moment to run for office with everything in place, but it's also the fact that you are living in a patriarchy, as we all are, and you're going to need to account for that when you're both as a scholar as well as uh, someone who's aspiring to run for office. You need to account for the reality that some of this is going to be out of your control, that it's going to be those in power determining when your presence will be useful to them and uh, welcoming you when that's the case and uh, making your life a lot more difficult when your presence will not be useful to them. So my hope is that the literature begins to expand more to look at more systematically. You know, there's so much more that we can do to understand the motivations of current power holders. And I think it's incredibly relevant, especially uh, as more and more discussions surrounding diversity are happening, because one of the, the points in the book is, um, Yes, you know, there's, there's a lot of great talk about diversity and there are a lot of people saying really nice things, but we need to look, we need to dig a little deeper. We need to look more closely and say, okay, well, you can say those nice things, but are you actually willing to give up some of your own power? Because um, that's very different, right? And so including that in the analyses and turning the focus a little bit away from telling women, work harder do more be more ambitious make sure you you know make sure you're perfect basically and instead looking more at the the, the gatekeepers and saying okay well, when are these gatekeepers allowing other people in who are not like them and, and what you know what can we learn about um how to get them to open the gate more frequently essentially
0: in in a certain sense, the the way that you are looking at this, and and also the the sort of um, contrast that you're making with regard to, you know, this argument to work harder, do better, um, you know, understand that the system is in flux it, for women. You know, they're sort of as as you and everybody else knows, women tend not to volunteer oftentimes to run for office. They they're at. They're asked, um, and they do it after their children are grown up. So they are in office oftentimes less time than men, um, and all of those those sort of sort of contrasts. But um, one of the ways that you're sort of contrasting it and and looking at this is a is an interesting kind of quietly neoliberal lens. <laughs> um, as as I'm I'm sort of reading through the book and listening to you talk about it you know it's sort of the the way that neoliberalism sort of talks to us about um you know we have to do our best and we're responsible for our successes and our failures and and so that you know e- you sort of said you went looking for the reason why women you know who do try hard who do who are smart who have gotten the degrees and you know, in the academy or in, you know, in politics or wherever, um, are still sort of faced with this. I don't know what else I can do (laughs) to succeed because I can't seem to get through these barriers, as you said. Um, which again, also then, you know, reaffirms the kind of, it's my fault as opposed to, There are bigger structural issues going on here.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I I think um, it's important to emphasize that, um, you know, I 100% support women's leadership training programs. I 100% uh, acknowledge and agree with that culturally women are told, you know, stay quiet, don't, don't, don't try too hard, don't do too much. And you are rewarded for, um, you know, not seeming like you're too ambitious, that kind of thing. So, I want to acknowledge I completely agree with that reality. But I think my effort here was to say yes, it is partially because women are, are constructed and trained and taught to believe that it's better when we stand back. But it's also uh, very important to acknowledge the other side of that, which is those who benefit from women standing back and those who can decide when it's time to let women in, right? So it's my hope here was to, um, you know, widen the lens, if you will, and say, yes, we've been looking at one part of this picture. But if you turn your head and look over here, you'll see this other part of the picture that shows us a lot more of the interconnectedness of what's going on here and that there are many layers of of women's continued political exclusion not simply a story of um not simply the vision that we've been seeing of it
0: and and I think that is is a really useful way for thinking about your research is it's really this widening of the lens and including because that's also what you're doing in terms of the methodology you're bringing in different perspectives and different kinds of mechanisms for analysis also and Obviously, in the book, you are doing this from a variety of different um, countries. You're looking at at this this sort of model and and the inclusion um, sort of structure uh, in different places. So it's not just the United States as well. Um, and I thought that was that was useful as well to sort of see in comparison is something going on in other countries culturally, you know, with regard to this same kind of dynamic. Um, did you find that the comparison across countries was surprising or not? Yeah. You know that I am a, I'm
1: a comparativist. And so, um, it, I knew that this book was going to engage other countries. And when I first imagined it, you know, I was trained primarily, uh, as focusing on Europe. So I thought, okay, it's going to be a lot of Europe, but then, um, I was allowed to go teach abroad down in Argentina a few years ago. And when I was there, it it was a wonderful experience. And I'm so thankful that I was allowed to do it because just I, I learned so much, you know, like there's nothing as, as everyone knows, there's nothing like living in the country for several months to really begin to understand more of what's going on. And, and it was when I was there, I was like, okay, this stuff that I've been thinking about just in the European context, actually, can apply elsewhere. And I don't want to say everywhere, but it can apply beyond Europe. And it really opened my eyes to um, all of the different cultural contexts, institutional contexts, historical contexts where this theory could work. And it inspired me to build the theory so that it could essentially flex to meet the challenges of the different contexts that it's placed in. So that was, that's one of the reasons why the inclusion calculation itself, is it's got a lot of moving parts, right? There's a lot going on with it because I want it to be able to, to flex and meet the challenge of wherever it's being put, whether it's um, Bangladesh, for example, one of the countries I talk about in the book, or Argentina or Italy. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that it can be most useful to scientists because of its ability to meet those different contexts and um, react to them.
0: And, and I did so appreciate having all of those other examples as I was reading through the book to sort of think about, like, what is different in Spain and Portugal as, you know, some of the examples that you bring in with regard to um, corruption scandals and so forth. Um, and, and again, you know, we have different kinds of corruption scandals usually in the United States than some of our European brothers and sisters do. Um, and so, to see how that that is then integrated into this question of gender representation was was really interesting. Can I ask you, Melody, what you're working on now?
1: Oh, sure, court, you know, everybody loves to talk about what they're doing now absolutely <laughs> um I'm super excited about I've got a few projects I'm working on, uh, but I think the one that I'm most excited about right now um I'm Writing a book uh, with Leslie Schwint Bayer, and we are thinking about we're taking a step forward from this book, actually, and thinking about something that I raised in here, which is um, uh, <laughs> the absolutely shouldn't be groundbreaking, but kind of is groundbreaking idea that women are different, and um, that when party elites are looking for women to put on their lists, they're going to be attentive to these women. Their personalities, their um, political activities. Their basically, we argue. Uh, we start with a very blunt and basic distinction, which um, again is just a starting point of uh, the reformer versus the conformer. So, um, where we talk about the situations where party elites might want the women that they in, uh, put on the list to be conformers. You know, so in this situation, we're talking about maybe. Uh, the widows of previous legislators who've just passed away. you know, Women who they know will maintain the party line and really focus on those traditional um, ideas that the elites might be endorsing at that time versus the situations when party elites might look for women who are reformers, where these are very outspoken women who are looking to change the system, change everything. And those women will typically send a stronger signal but then party elites, they, they bring a higher threat to party elites, right? Because if they're looking to change everything, then that means they could change the party to the point where the current elites could be uh, out of a job or, you know, no longer welcome. So we're, we're really thinking through, um, it's very and is very, very uh, intellectually exciting and fun, but also really kind of scary because... You know, trying to figure out, okay, well, how how do we divide up the personalities of women? <laughs> like, it's it's something that you know you can only do after tenure because it might not work, but um, it it certainly is uh, fun and and really exciting to be able to be writing something where we're acknowledging this this very real trend of you know women are all quite different from one another. So, what when party elites are looking for women, what what sorts of personality traits are they more likely to draw from? And our, our preliminary data is supporting a lot of our initial hypotheses. That's, um, and that's, that's very exciting to see. But we're, we're just, you know, it's, it's just like a baby book right now. It's not even a toddler yet. So we're, we're going to see how it turns out.
0: Well, I hope you and your co-author will come on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me when it's a full-grown book. Sure. Of course. Yes. All right. I wanted to also ask you one last question about the cover of your book with these lovely Lego people yes. um, that that I am so well familiar with because my children also went through a Lego phase. Yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit of what's going on in this picture? It's so,
1: I'm so glad you asked because uh, it's my own little Easter egg So uh, Oxford sent me their proposed cover of the book while I was at Legoland with my kids. (laughs) And no joke, I opened it up on my phone and I was like, "Mm, this is okay," But it was nothing like this. Right. It was a picture. And, you know, Oxford has been very good to me. So I'm definitely not talking any trash about Oxford, but, you know, how they envision the cover of this book was very different than what I was thinking about for it. So I'm there staring at Legos all day and, you know, thinking about the cover of my book and, and it just sort of, I just start thinking about like men's hands holding women, women Legos. Um, and it, it just went from there. And then, so when I got home, I emailed Oxford and I said, how about I tried taking a picture of, of what I think the the cover should be and they were they were game they played along with it so it's actually my husband holding the legos on the front of the cover and uh and those are my kids built that little lego legislature and uh we put their their favorite lego ladies there in it and so um i couldn't believe it when oxford said yeah we'll go ahead and use that i was i was really excited now i get to every time i read the book i get to see my husband so that's nice
0: well, I, I think it's a, it's a really insightful cover. And um, for those of us who have like stepped on Legos in the middle of the night, yes. um, because our children leave them around the house, we, we certainly feel, feel it, as it were. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to thank you for joining me today, Melody Valdini, um, the author of The Inclusion Calculation, Why Men Appropriate Women's Representation. Um, This is published by Oxford University Press. I assume one can get it at Oxford University Press's website. Is there any place else you'd like to give a shout out to?
1: Uh, Yes, because I uh, live in Portland, Oregon. I definitely want to encourage people to buy it from Powell's Bookshop, an excellent and amazing bookstore that I'm very lucky to be in proximity with. And they have a
0: a, they have a very good online um, site for people to buy. Yes, yes. So um, please go there or Oxford if you'd like to pick up a copy, copy of Melody's excellent book, The Inclusion Calculation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Melody.
1: Oh, thank you. This has been so fun.
0: It's my pleasure.